Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2291 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the second of 10 messages in our series covering the characters of Christmas. This message is titled, A Christmas Miracle, Zachariah and Elizabeth. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. I do appreciate everyone being here today. I appreciate the spirit that we have at Putnam, the spirit of sharing and giving, of loving, especially meaningful during the Christmas season. Last week, we began our Advent series exploring five characters of Christmas, beginning with Joseph, that unsung hero of Christmas. And today we continue our Advent series while we explore a Christmas miracle, the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And I borrowed two of the figures from our nativity scene in the foyer. Zachariah, the priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. And those are the focus of our message today. And Zachariah went in and burnt incense before the altar of the Lord. Our initial scripture today is Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, on page 1587 of your pew Bible. So follow along as I read. And this is the birth of John the Baptist foretold. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God, and he was chosen by lot, according to the customs of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all assembled worshipers were, out, were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. And he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and their disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife, she is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and have been set to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not be able to speak until the day of this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he was staying so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When the time of the service was completed, he returned home. 
After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, Elizabeth, becoming pregnant certainly was a Christmas miracle. She was beyond her years. She had gone through menopause, and physically, she was unable, impossible, to bear a child. But everyone, it seems, looks for a miracle at Christmas time. Something about this time of year puts us in the heart of yearning for something new. And if you Google the words Christmas miracle, you'll find over 124 million returns on that. We're all in search for a bit of magic around the holidays. This is perhaps why we fill the season with fuzzy memories and indulge in sentimental movies and music. We do this to take us back to a time of innocence and of peace in our childhood. However, we know that this miracle that we seek, eventually in the post-Christmas letdown kicks in, we have to deal with reality once again. We might have had an unfulfilled dream of how the holidays should have gone. Maybe we'll have financial worries because we just spent a little bit too much. Or maybe we had some sort of secret health anxieties that we're worried about. Even of those who, of us who know the real hope for Christmas, the real miracle of God coming to earth in the flesh as a baby, we can be caught up in this kind of sentimentality that papers over and anguish of the world. And it's okay that during the season that we step back and look at things how we would like them to be. But we have to understand our role in the world as believers. And that's why when we open Luke's gospel and reread this narrative of how this first Christmas began, it gives us a deep window into the heartaches and longing of a nation of suffering people. The angels of joy and the shepherds Wonderment came a few months later. At the time of this decree, the Emperor Augustus, it had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people of Israel. 400 silent years. That's almost twice as long as America has been in a country. Four centuries of apparent silence. The book of Malachi ends this with a faint promise of a future hope in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Look, I am sending to you a prophet Elijah. Before that great and dreadful day the Lord arrives, his preaching will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land, strike the land with a curse. That was the last word from God. After that, no prophets were sent to bring messages of judgment or prosperity. There were no angels, no kings, no deliverers. Israel had been shaken by revolution of war during these 400 years. Most of God's people who were scattered during the, exit, the, during the, the great dispersion were still scattered among those conquering nations. Now some had come back to the land with Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, but then the Syrians came in and savaged the land and the people. The revolution they started on their own during the era of the Maccabees brought some temporary hope for them during these 400 years, but only that was crushed by Pompey the Great, the Roman who brought Israel under bondage of Rome. 
And every day as they walked into the temple built by Herod, a ruthless and illegitimate king of Israel, they saw that Roman flag waving above their city. It reminded them that they were under an occupying nation. But yet amid this darkness, when it seemed that all was lost and no one could be trusted, God was silent, but he was not sleeping. Psalm chapter 121 verses 2 through 4 tells us, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. Turn one too many pages. (laughs) It might seem a little trite for us to say, the darkest of night comes right before the dawn, but in this time a new day was dawning. In this beleaguered land amidst of our oppressed people, the faint hope of Malachi was their hope that might be fulfilled. And during this time, we see a righteous couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and a quiet God. In the time of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now, Herod was a powerful monarch on the throne of Israel, put there by the nation of Rome. Zechariah was one of 300 priests in the family of Abijah. He was one of 24 divisions of priests in Israel. There was a total of 7,200 priests in the nation at that time. So there's a stark contrast between a powerful king of a country and this ordinary peasant priest and his wife, humble wife Elizabeth. The news of Israel's deliverer who would change the world forever, would not come from the palace, but from an aging priest in the Jewish house of worship. Zechariah's name was common in those days. In fact, there are several mentions of different as Zechariah's in the Old Testament of the Bible. But it is one that core confidence and coincidence in these first words of God to his people after 400 years would come from a person whose name meant The Lord has remembered. It didn't seem to the Jewish people living under Romans' rule that the Lord had remembered. They were under oppression. But it recalls to an earlier time when an oppressed people of God languished for 400 years in the country of Egypt. The God who remembered them in Egypt would now rescue them from their sins. So it's not so simple that God forgot. It's that when God remembers... He acts. And God was about to act not only on a national level through Zechariah and Elizabeth, but even to a personal level in their personal lives. Their pain grounded in brokenness around them and centered in a private anguish of having no children that they so desperately wanted. And like a long line of godly women in the story of God, Elizabeth was unable to bear children. And to suffer the indignity of infertility is cruel in any age, but it was especially difficult in this first century of those that looked to the ability to conceive as somewhat of a blessing from God, a direct sign of a blessing. So they resigned themselves to the fate at this point in their lives, very old, probably in their 80s, maybe 90s, that they were not to have children. Never would they hear the whisper of a child in his first words. 
Never would they have, be able to walk a son or the daughter into the temple where they worshipped the God they loved. Never would they have the sweet privilege of handing down the story of Israel to generations of their own. There's a theme in the scripture of God and him visiting those women who were barren. Who can forget the desperation and despair of Sarah, Abraham's wife, or Rebecca and Rachel, all in the line of Abraham? Each time they had authentic pleas to God for children, and he provided them an answer. Or we think about the guttural cries of Hannah on her knees in the temple, begging that God would open her, her womb. But we also think of the bitter spirit of Michael, David's first wife, who was unable to conceive children because of her actions. Now Luke carefully contrasts the righteousness of Zachariah and Elizabeth with their, in, and their, their infertility to tell us that their inability to bear children was not a result of personal sin or a lack of blessing. Zachariah and Elizabeth were faithful to God, and yet God allowed them to suffer for their own good, but for his glory. Here is a devout couple who, like many of the children of Abraham under the old covenant, believes God's promises, and their faith was counted to them as righteousness. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, and James chapter 2, verse 23. And when we think night is dark, that is a time when God shows up. God is always with us, and we intellectually know this, that we're never alone. But there are times when the presence of God is seen and felt even more powerfully in our lives. And this was the case with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest from the family of Aaron, as I mentioned. Aaron was the brother of Moses. Elizabeth was also from the family of Aaron. So the priestly functions and their duties were a part of their nature. It was in their blood, you might say. As I mentioned, there's 24 divisions of families of priests. Each of those had 300 priests in them, 7,200 priests in all. Every division would have two weeks during the course of a year to serve in the temple, not including those major festivals where all the priests were expected to participate. Now, this particular day, Luke describes a special day for Zechariah because he was chosen to go into the holy place and to burn incense before the altar. God. To decide out who gets this honor, they drew lots. They either rolled dice or they drew straws. And the shortest straw won. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event. The highest honor in the temple's priest's life. Zechariah would be the one to offer sacrifices, or incense, I should say, before the Lord. Undoubtedly, among those faithful worshipers outside the court were family and friends who came from all over the region in order to be there when Zechariah presented those incense before the Lord. And you remember that incense in the Old Testament is a sign of our prayers ascending to God, the sweet perfume of those prayers. After this, Zechariah would be viewed even more so of a spiritual leader among his people, like those others who have been chosen for this sacred duty. It would be the first or second line in every conversation with them, saying, he once served incense at the altar of the Lord. This would be a special day because of this incense lighting, and if that was 
All he did, he would have been thrilled. But it also was a day that an angel appeared to Zechariah as he lit those incense. An angel appeared to the right-hand side of the altar. But if you know the Christmas story well, as most of us do, we can shrug off and move on. Because angels are as synonymous with Christmas as reindeer and mistletoe in our day. But the angel didn't just regularly appear in Herod's temple in Zechariah's day. The people of God, we remember, had not heard from God for 400 years. So after a long winter of silence, and suddenly, and without warning, Gabriel, the same angel who appeared to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8, verse 18, 500 years earlier, during a time of sacrifice, was now in the presence of this trembling priest, Zechariah, and what do you do when an angel visits you? Well, Zechariah's response was exactly like Daniel's. They fell on their face in fear. But of course, when we think of angels, we're not so much afraid of them. We think of being touched by an angel or Clarence, that affable angel in It's a Wonderful Life. It was just a bit jovial, but not quite all there with it. Is that what we think about angels? But in Scripture, the messenger of God arrived. It usually sparked fear. Fear because the angel, even though in a diminished sense, represented the holiness and the hot, white-hot glory of God. In those days, God was not seen as just that helpful man upstairs. Instead, he was one who could strike vengeance if he chose and who would judge the nations. We would be wise in our flippancy of today's society to remember that God's character hasn't changed in the 2,000 years since then, but the difference is that we are now in Christ. We have a personal, more intimate relationship with him by faith. Jesus is fully human, and he understands our weaknesses and our pains and our emotions, but he is also God, the one who fashioned us out of the dust of the earth and hung the stars in place. And so while Gabriel's words to Zechariah was, do not be afraid, in verse 13, they're instructive to us also today. We don't have to fear because God has reconciled us to him through Christ. In Hebrews it says we can go boldly before the throne of God with no fear. But we would be wise to remember what the wisest man in the world penned in the book of Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so through this, we see silence and we see faith. It's more than ironic that God has placed, chose to speak as in the temple, built by an illegitimate king, and often, as Jesus would expose later, run by a bunch of corrupt priests, at least at the top. God was signaling to his people that something new was afoot. A new day was dawning. Everything up to this point in long Israel's long history, the sacrifices, the temple, the feast, and the festivals would culminate in God himself descending to earth in human form. He became flesh and dwelt among us. The temple, and by extension, the synagogues among scattered people of God would no longer be the place of worship. We could worship God anytime, any place, and go before his throne. Gabriel's announcement to stun Zechariah. 
Because the angel said, your prayer has been heard. But as we read this passage, we don't see Zechariah actually offering a prayer that's written down. And some speculate that it refers to year-long pleading and a desire to bear children. While others speculate the angel referred to Zechariah, the prayer that he would offer as he gave incense before the altar of God, praying for that coming of the Messiah. That was their prayer. But as I read this, I wonder if the angel might have not been referring to both instances, in a sense, a desire for a physical son through his own being, but also that longing for the spiritual son to come to set up God's kingdom. The long years of anguish and darkness, a year after year, begging and pleading for a child, likely gave way to desperate pleading to God, knowing that they would never have a child, that God may come to earth, as was prophesied. There are our requests that we send up to the Lord that seem doable and reachable, but there's also requests that we send up maybe with some cynicism and doubt, as if the only time we might see resolution to some of our prayer requests is when God entirely renews and restores the world to himself. Was this Zachariah's daily heartbroken prayer? Was this what his feeble, feeble lips whispered as he lit those incense on the altar? We don't really know, but we do know what God, Gabriel said in response, your prayers have been answered. We don't know and can't really imagine how this hit Zechariah the priest. He had long, so long he prayed for, so long he had pleaded, so many years has passed, so many tears have been shed. And now, it was happening, and he couldn't believe it. So the angel repeated his words, this time with more authority in verse 19. He says, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Zechariah, the aging priest, and Elizabeth, long past childbearing, would have a baby. But not just any baby, but one filled with the Holy Spirit that would be empowered and reminiscent of the empowering of the Old Testament prophets, as described in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Also, it foreshadowed a time when God would pour out His Spirit on all people who believed in Him. And we know that pouring out His Spirit came at Pentecost, as described in Acts chapter 2, verse 28, in the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the world in Joel it reads in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Then after doing all these things, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your un young men will see visions. And in the those days, I will pour out my Spirit even on servants, men and women alike, because we're all one in Christ. There's no status in society in Christ. There's no difference between genders and Christ. We are brought in as one. John would come in the spirit of Elijah. Gabriel says that he would, like Elijah, call his people to repentance. John's ministry would be one of both disruption and renewal. He would speak the truth to power and lose his life because of it. He would provoke a deep repentance and a turning toward God in Israel. His message would return the hearts of the fathers to their children 
that fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi, which we read. But ultimately, this unique child would have just one job. I'm sure you've seen these men, there are memes online where it says, this person only had one job, and it was something really crazy that they did. But John the baptizer fulfilled his job as he proclaimed Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his job, his sole job to do that. Zachariah's response was one of stunned disbelief. Now, it might be easy for us to confuse this with the questions that Mary asked the angel who came six months later to her. And by while Mary's inquiries were laden with trust, if you go, in the original language, it was the language of trust, Zechariah's response was encrusted with cynicism and doubt. He says, how can I be sure of this? I am an old woman, my wife, but she's no spring chicken. She's well I'm beyond her years. His statement was not like those complicated and challenging doubts thrown at God by David in Psalm chapter 13, verse 1, or by Habakkuk, who said, O Lord, how long, O Lord? In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, Zechariah's declaration, like those of Peter, when he was told about the future death and resurrection of Christ in Matthew 16, 22, Peter said, Heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. And it was in that same tone that Zechariah questioned the angel. The declaration in opposition to the plan of God. They were like the faithless disobedience of God's people who stood on the precipice of entering that promised land and declared before Moses, God could not do the impossible in Canaan. Now, God loves hearing our doubts he loves fielding our questions. He loves hearing our anguished cries as we cry out to him. But let's do it in belief and not disbelief because disbelief is a sin. Our willingness to trust God that he can do the impossible in our lives. And so Zachariah's punishment was one that he was struck mute for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. For nine months, maybe a little more, he could not speak. In a way, this affliction, though, if we look at it, was less of a punishment and more of a gift from God. To not speak would be to sit in silence before God. To qu be quiet, the chattering of our soul and the noise of his circumstances. He could have been so excited that he would just babble on and on, but God muted him. In a way, this is the way God seeks to work in us, in the all hearts of all of us. And Christmas is an excellent time to practice that silence, to sit, to listen to God's voice, to put away our devices and those things that distract us and keep us from our faith. A priest who often spoke words of blessing over his people would be silenced and would emerge with a renewed faith in that possibility of God's promise finally. And sometimes God has to quiet us so that we can hear him. Sometimes we have to be still so that we can see him move. Sometimes our words and busyness get in the way of our faith. They form a cynical shell around our hearts so we don't hear what God wants to tell us. And just as the Old Testament saints were waiting for that advent, for the coming of the Messiah, we today are waiting for that coming of the King. 
the same person in a different role. Imagine that newfound joy of the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Not only would they become parents after decades of infertility, despair, and disbelief, but they would also be the parent of the last of the Old Testament prophets and the forerunner of the Messiah. The delight in Elizabeth's life was evident when she hosted her younger cousin Mary after Mary's visit from the angel Gabriel. When she heard Mary's news that in her womb was the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth gushed with worship toward God. In verse 43, it says, Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Even though she was present in her own miraculous story, she was quick to look past herself toward that unborn Christ. And I'm struck by the entire scene of Luke here, the older pregnant woman blessing her younger cousin, her pregnant cousin. The baby John leaped in her womb to worship that baby Jesus. He was filled with the spirit from his womb. When God's promise to Eve had been finally fulfilled, though there are the pain of childbirth, a prophet and a Christ child, and the dawning of a new age, a new birth, that's the birth of God's kingdom. Our new birth is the real Christmas story. It's the heart of Christianity. We have to go through brokenness in order to experience the new birth. The same God who birthed life into Sarah's dead womb and breathed life into Elizabeth and Mary's womb. And this baby Jesus is the life, the death, and the resurrection. He breathes life into our lives. He breathes new birth into those who follow him. The theme is echoed in Zechariah's prayer at the birth of John, nine months after he first saw that angel. He was quiet for so long, and now Zechariah experienced a renewal of obedience and of faith. In verse 63, he, was asked, he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Because they were saying, surely his name will be Zechariah. Typically, it was customary for the fathers to name their firstborn son after them, like my granddad did, my dad did, I did, my son did was not uncommon in those days. In fact, it was very common. But humbled by God's faithfulness and broken by repentance, Zechariah yielded to the Almighty. Every genuine act of repentance is met by brokenness first and then obedience to God. There's always a break from the old ways. There's no cheap grace on display here. Not only was God's birthing something that was refreshed or refreshed Elizabeth, it was also the birthing of something new in Zechariah. A birthing of something new in God's people, the nation of Israel, and a birthing of something new in our lives. And that's why Zechariah's song, often called the Benedictus, and I've included this in our bulletin insert today. I didn't, hadn't intended reading it before the message because John was called out, I decided to read through that. So I would encourage you to read that this week. It reflects the fulfillment of the longing and the desire, the signaling of something new in Christ that he's come. And I encourage you to read it. And this is the new dawn of God's kingdom here on earth. The beginning of the restoration of Eden, but on a global scale. 
Zechariah sees how his story is as part of God's long story. From Abraham through David, the long-awaited time had finally arrived. The narratives of Israel, every single life, from the story of Abraham through the story the prophet of Malachi, were only small dramas in the Old Testament to the grand story of Jesus. The message of Christmas, then, is not about manufacturing sentimental feelings, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying this Christmas season around some good movies and some good songs and family time. But let's realize that the real miracle isn't those sentimental feelings that we have. Instead, it's about believing that God has birthed something new in us through Jesus Christ. And because of this, God will birth something new in everyone who turns to him. And that newness is breaking out. Even still today, throughout the world, the kingdom of God is exploding. Even in those countries where they have no freedom of worship, the kingdom of God explodes throughout the world because it's this new birth that's breaking out throughout the world. And we at Christmas, let us take time to sit in silence and await another advent, the coming of the king, when the child returns as a king to complete his mission, to restore the hearts and to restore and renew our world into new global Eden. On the other side of your bulletin insert today, I've provided some Advent reflections for this week. The four are, we often sentimentalize Christmas and forget that God entered a time in history where the world was just as broken as it is today, if not more so. Compare and contrast the visit of Gabriel to Daniel in Daniel 9 to the visit of Gabriel to Zechariah in Luke 1. Consider Zechariah's response to Gabriel. And in what way can you and your family sit in silence and meditate on the promise of the new birth of Christmas? So reflect on those this week. Then next week we will explore the heart of Mary, the simple girl at the center of everything. So I'd encourage you to read Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56 in preparation for next week's message. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we can learn from this lesson of your godly priest and his wife, Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were faithfully serving you, even though things had not turned out the way that they had anticipated. They so desired a child, but they faithfully served you regardless. Help us to faithfully serve you each day. And regardless of what comes into our lives, we will praise your name, Father, because we know that through this we'll receive your blessings, we'll receive your grace, Father. The blessing is the biggest blessing that has been birthed in us, which is your Son, Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world. Let us keep this in mind as we celebrate, as we reflect on Christmas this season. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, 
reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.